actually I am both of those things. Uh, so I thought it would be fun to kind of make a list this week of the things that I was looking for. So as I noticed that I was looking for something, I grabbed my phone and I would, you know, just jot it down into a little list. And so here's what I've looked for this week. Kyra's shoes, Nora's shoes, Kyra's purple leggings, curling iron, my keys, hair clippers, phone charger, hairbrush, Minnie Mouse, Nora's shoes, nail, nail clippers, Nora, my keys, <laughs> a notebook, chapstick, my keys, chocolate, clean socks, crayons, wipes, my keys, my phone, chapstick, <laughs> and I just stopped. Because clearly there was like this repeating pattern happening. And, and this accounted for like actually Wednesday and part of Thursday and then it was like, well, I think I could just run this list on repeat and, and we'd have the same thing happening. But we're always looking for something. And if it's not something that is tangible, then it's something that is intangible that we are looking for. We feel off. Something feels like it's missing. Or our life kind of feels like out of balance. And so we rearrange our schedule or our living room. We try Whole30 or we go to the beach. We try simplifying our life or maybe we do like a pilgrimage to find ourselves. And if we aren't looking for our car keys, then we're looking for answers. Or maybe we're looking to find the problem. Maybe we're deeply aware of the problem and it weighs heavy on us and so we're actually looking for peace or for rest. What are you looking for? And Andrew's answer to this question is like a little bit disappointing. You know, we, we're hoping that a disciple of John the Baptist would have a little more of a grasp on what John means when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. But he responds instead in this like kind of awkward way that we do when we don't really maybe know the answer to the question. And he refers to him, he addresses him as teacher. Teacher? You know, like this super generic term, totally missing it. Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? And the question isn't all bad because it does make it really clear that their intention is to follow him, both like physically follow him and also metaphorically follow him. But it also makes it pretty apparent that they have no grasp on the gravity of who it is that they are talking to. They only know enough to know that they should follow him. Come and see, Jesus says. So Andrew goes, and he finds his brother Simon, and he says, We found the Messiah! And however exciting it is that they have encountered Jesus, it is completely false that they found him. Then he refers to him as Messiah, which means the anointed one, which is true, but it still doesn't bear the same weight as referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God. So we continue to feel a little bit disappointed as we encounter, for the first time, the disciples of Jesus. So the next day, Jesus goes to Galilee, right? And he finds Philip. 
he says to him, follow me. And Philip then goes and he finds Nathanael. And he says, we found Jesus, the son of Joseph of Nazareth. Are you seeing the pattern? So the lie of Andrew gets repeated. We found Jesus. And then Philip also reveals that he has this kind of uh, shallow, somewhat shallow understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus can't be understood in the context of Joseph or in the context of Nazareth, even though these are pieces of him, pieces that were even like foretold from the prophets. They're important, but they're just missing the mark of who he is. So then Nathaniel asks, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Which kind of sounds like one of these things that we use, like, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, you know? Like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip responds by echoing Jesus' early conversation with Andrew, and he says, come and see. Nathaniel did not come to faith by seeing Jesus, but because Jesus saw him. And Jesus greets him with this statement about who Nathaniel is, to which Nathaniel responds, how did you get to know me? And Jesus says, well, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. And there's something about this statement that moves Nathaniel. There's something about it that he knows that Jesus could not have known this without some kind of divine knowledge. The statement alone is miraculous in a way that only Nathaniel understands. And then it propels him to say, you know, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, which are more elevated proclamations of who Jesus is, but they still are clearly expressions of this, like, first century messianic hope. Right? These would be phrases that they would have exchanged as they talked about the expected Messiah, who it is that they're hoping for, and what they imagine he will be like when he comes. They're a product of his culture, of his religion, of history. And I imagine that Jesus' response to Nathaniel comes with like a little bit of a laugh. Like, really? You know, you going to believe just because I saw you under a fig tree? Like, you know, buckle up. It's going to get so much better than that. But what Jesus says to him exactly is, heaven, you will see heaven opened up and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So I want to, like, pause here for a second and just kind of geek out a little bit about the Old and New Testament and just how awesome the connectedness is. And I won't mention... Moana. <laughs> but it's really, really cool. Okay, so uh, when Jesus greets Nathaniel, right, and he says, Behold, an Israelite, here, or here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He's referring back to Nathaniel's ancestor, Jacob, who, as you remember, deceived his father in order to get the blessing instead of his older twin brother, Esau. Which, of course, then Esau is like totally enraged, and then Nathaniel, or not Nathaniel, Jacob, has to then run for his life, and so he does. And he runs to the night, and he's exhausted, and so that evening, 
he pauses to rest. And he looks on the ground to find a stone for him to put under his head to lay on. And he does, and there he sleeps, and he dreams a dream where he sees angels ascending and descending. He realizes suddenly that God is standing beside him, who then whispers these promises and reminds him of his presence. And he says that I surely will be with you until these things have come to pass. Pretty cool, right? Pretty cool. So, we've read the encounters of the first disciples with Jesus. It's pretty clear that they are looking for someone who will fulfill their expectations, what, that, what he will be like. So what was your earliest memories of Jesus as you guys kind of talked in your groups? Like, you don't have to tell me, but, but think back to that. Like, what was your earliest memory? It may have been, like, an explicit memory, like somebody literally told you, here's who Jesus is. It could have been like an implicit memory where you observed something and then kind of got an impression about who Jesus is. But think back to your first memory of Jesus. What expectations emerged from the Jesus that you were presented with? Some of my earliest memories were of being in um, my minivan as a kid, and my grandmother turned around backwards in the passenger seat, teaching me the 23rd Psalm. Like, this happens so often. I can still hear the repeated um, inflection in her voice as she went through each verse, and feeling like it was just really important that I understood Jesus as our shepherd and God as our shepherd. I remember um, I went to the Bunker Hill Church of God in Bunker Hill, Tennessee, which is as rural as it sounds. <laughs> and uh, I remember just being in Sunday school class and like, you know, pining after the affirmation of knowing the right answers in Sunday school. Um, I remember making all the funny little Jesus crafts that immediately they would become this gift that I would run and I would give to my mom with great pride and joy. And I remember feeling like church was kind of serious. You know, we always dressed up, uh, the white tights with the black patent leather <coughs> shoes, you know. And there would be this sudden shift that would happen the moment that, that we like, stepped into the threshold of the sanctuary. I remember my mom would kind of whispered to me, okay, and laughter would get hushed, and we would walk slower, and we would talk less. I remember uh, singing I'll Fly Away, anyone? This was my favorite song as a kid, I loved it, it was an old hymn. I remember singing it in church with like extra gusto, 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 gusto. Because the woman in front of us had this really loud, very good, but very loud singing voice. And so I felt really confident just like, you know, letting it, letting it emerge forth. Um, everything in, in my childhood of learning about Jesus, it all kind of seemed to circle back to heaven. 
And Jesus was the way that we got to heaven. So you could say that like the destination was the emphasis. And uh, Bunker Hill was a long drive from our house. It was like a 45-minute drive. So it was a long drive there and a long drive back. And so a lot of times we would stop at my grandfather's farm after church and we'd spend the afternoon there. And I distinctly remember the feeling of finally taking off those patent leather shoes. And the way that my feet under those tights would just like immediately cool as the air finally reached them. And then sliding my legs under a cold quilt that would just slowly warm up as I was falling asleep. As a teenager, I remember noticing that everyone seemed to be looking to encounter God. They were looking for like a reminder that God was there. So whether it was like an emotional charge worship service or um, a mysterious provision or an answer to prayer or revival or uh, testimonies on Sunday morning in church, I heard a lot of talk about dry seasons of faith where you didn't feel the Holy Spirit and God did not seem near as opposed to these times when you were like on fire for God, right? The experience seemed to be the focus. I heard phrases repeated in my house. Maybe you guys had similar experiences. I don't know. But one of the big ones was abstain from the appearance of evil. <laughs> All the time. Uh, always be ready with an answer was the other one. And I took those to heart. And by the time I was through college and entering into ministry, I had this like blemish-free record of holy living and a pocket full of answers ready at any moment. Like I might as well have just had Jesus in my pocket. I knew exactly what it was that I was looking for. Perhaps Andrew's answer to Jesus was not so bad. Jesus didn't rebuke him for it. He did not correct him. He invited him. Come and see. Perhaps knowing what we are looking for is not as important as where we are looking. Somewhere along the way, all of us figured out exactly what we were looking for. We, like, settled on the answers to our uncomfortable theological questions. We built a temple for our God. We created a sacred space for him where we knew that we could find him. And it's not that our reverence of sanctuary was misplaced. It's not that it was misplaced, but it was detrimentally confined. We domesticated God. And this is the tension that is felt when the book of John is being written. The temple of Jerusalem had just been destroyed again, the house of God the place where the people of God gathered to find God, to encounter Him, to worship Him. And when it was gone, 
where would the people know to find God? When Jacob had laid his head on that rock pillow and dreamed the dream of God's vision for his people, there was yet to be a temple built. There was no temple. Instead, God tabernacled with his people. God was on the move with his people who were on the move. And so when Jacob woke up from this dream, he woke up and he said, Surely the Lord is present in this place, and I did not know it. And then he took his rock pillow and he stood it upright as an altar or as a marker that in this place God revealed himself. It is here that God made himself known. God showed up. Barbara Brown Taylor uh, has her book, An Altar in the World, that I totally recommend. It's awesome. But she says in that book, she says, Without one designated place to make their offerings, people were free to see the whole world as an altar. The divine could erupt anywhere. And when it did, they marked the spot in any way that they could. A couple years ago, I walked into the Notre Dame Cathedral completely unprepared for the experience. Like, you, you step over the threshold, and immediately you can, like, hear your heart beating in your chest. You feel, like, really aware of your smallness because you have these, like, vaulted ceilings. You feel like every step just kind of has extra weight to it. So you walk slower. Your gaze is lifted upward at these completely mesmerizing stained glass um, in the ceiling and along the walls. The reverence is like palatable. It's thick. Um, I found myself communicating like with my eyes and hand motions, you know, instead of using words. And while other places we had gone that day, we rushed by or we rushed through, in this place it felt like we couldn't be that governed by time. We were so aware of the divine. Our tendency is to separate the secular from the sacred, right? And put them in two different separate piles. Even though we say that we believe that God can show up anywhere, there's definitely some places that we expect to encounter God, and then other places that we don't really expect to encounter Him. What if we walked into Home Depot with the same reverence that we walked <coughs> into a cathedral with? What changes in our life when we realize that Jesus finds us instead of us finding Jesus. Will we walk slower and speak softer when we realize that the whole world is the house of God? Today we are celebrating Epiphany. It's that celebration of God revealing himself to the entire world, to Jew and to Gentile, by way of kings that came and worshipped Jesus. 
And the thing that we can be certain of is that God will continue to show up and reveal himself in ways that we do not expect, and no matter what our expectation is. If you expected Christ to come as this mighty, powerful ruler, then you would have been surprised that he first revealed himself to lowly, common shepherds. If you see Christ as the one who brings the year of jubilee, justice for the oppressed, and freedom for the slave, the one who stands in the margins with those that are in the margins of society, then you would be rather shocked that he would reveal himself to Gentile kings. Some feel uncomfortable recognizing that God can be found under the bridge downtown. And others feel uncomfortable recognizing that he can show up in the walls of the White House. Some struggle to believe that God could be revealed in a worship service with distractingly off-key musicians. And others really struggle to believe that he could be revealed in a worship service with strobe lights and a fog machine. Some struggle to encounter God as female. Some struggle to encounter God as male. Some look for him in liturgical services. Some look for him in a garden. In what ways has who you are, your experiences, your culture, played into how you understand God? Whether liberal or conservative, our words and our understanding will always fail. But God meets us there. He meets us right wherever we come to him in, and he extends this invitation. It's one that is uncomfortable and breathtaking to come and see. Just like the Pharisees who were who were once the prophets, right? They were once the prophetic arm of the priesthood. We can all be looking without seeing. But even in that era, and even in the era of, of narrow-mindedness or of busyness, God continues to find us. He continues to reveal himself and make himself known. <coughs> And when he does come and completely shatter our expectations, we can raise our head off of our rock pillow, and we can say, surely the Lord is in this place, but I did not know it. What Will we walk slower? Will we speak softer? When we realize that the entire world is the house of God. What are you looking for? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you extended this invitation to come and see. God, I thank you that your love propelled you to reveal yourself to us. God, I pray that you will open our hearts 
open our eyes. Help us to be slow in our steps. Slow in our words. Help us to be quick to listen. Give us eyes to see you in unexpected places. Give us ears to hear you above all the noises of our life. Thank you for meeting us here this morning. Thank you for going with us every step that we take through this day. We love you and we need you. Amen.